can we understand something as complicated as a war, an economic crisis? Who do we ask? Politics is too important to leave to experts. We're all affected by it, and we can't ignore it. You know more than you think, and you can learn what you don't know. I'm Justin Podor, and this is The Ossington Circle, a podcast to help you understand the world, and maybe even change it. Hello, and welcome to the Ossington Circle. So this time we're doing something a little different. We've kicked Justin out of the interviewer's chair, and we're going to be interviewing him this week. My name's Dan Freeman Malloy, and Justin, do you want to say anything to introduce yourself? Well, uh, here I am. It's uh, it's a bit of a different position for me. Thank you for coming. Dan, uh, by the way, you were one of the Ossington Circle guests before it was a podcast. It was a video. We did a video just outside the room that we're in right now. And uh, we talked about the aftermath of the Gaza War of 2014. So, And now we're going to be talking about some of your work. Okay. I guess I met you like a good, more than a decade and a half ago as 16. a high school student when you were teaching at Z Media Institute in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Yeah. Now, since you've been involved in a range of both local and international solidarity work, writing about and traveling to Palestine and Colombia, more recently Haiti, Afghanistan, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and we can get into the details of some of those issues, but... What I want to try to tease out, if we can, is some of the overall continuum of what you've been doing and the sort of shared themes across it. And really propaganda and empire seem Mm -hmm. at the center of the work. So last month, Ed Herman died. And it was, of course, Ed Herman alongside Noam Chomsky that developed what, for many of us, was the paradigm through which we view the mainstream media in the capitalist West, namely the propaganda model. I want to talk a little about how we need to adapt that to think about present world realities. But if first off you could just go through laying out the propaganda model. Yeah. So the propaganda model, Ed Herman, was the person who came up with this. In any interview that you see with Chomsky, he always makes a point of saying that it's Mm -hmm. Ed Herman's model and the co-authored work Manufacturing Consent. So the model has five filters. It says, what if we look at the Western media? It's written in the 80s. So we're talking about newspapers. They're analyzing newspapers, which in 2017 seems like... Yeah, we'll turn to that in a bit. Something people print out, I guess. I don't know. You know, you print it out because you don't have access to the web. Maybe you're going on the subway or something. But So they, they were analyzing these things called newspapers and these corporations that produce newspapers. But the filters they describe apply and continue to apply. So they, they said, okay, look, everybody talks about the Russian or the Soviet propaganda system. But what if we looked at the West as a propaganda system? So we have five filters. So we start off with the world, news, information. But as members of a Western society, we actually get this raw information that's out there in the world comes to us mediated. It comes to us through these media institutions. And so at each stage, there are these filters that prevent us from seeing a fuller picture of the world that ensures that the picture of the world that we see is one that serves the people that own the corporations that present the information to us. So the first filter is ownership. So the idea that the media are owned by these corporations and the ownership of these corporations means by private for-profit entities means that they're not going to ever present 
information or they're going to avoid presenting information or they're going to repeat, you know, it's a filter. So some things get through the filter sometimes. But the idea is overall, you're going to get a picture that's favorable to private enterprise and favorable to corporate ownership. The next filter is the business model of these corporations, which involves selling. It blew my mind when I encountered it 22 or so years ago. The idea is you're not, you're the person who buys the newspaper, you're the person who buys the, you know, pays the subscription to the, to the media entity, but you're not the customer. So the customer is actually the advertiser and you are what's being sold to the advertiser. So this is amazing. So the, what, the, what the media is doing is they're providing you information that makes you want to go onto the site or open up the newspaper. But the person who's actually paying for the business to operate and providing the profits for the business is the person that's advertising to you. Which means that the whole overall package of the media is going to be a package that puts you in the mood to buy things, to be favorable towards a consumer society in general and specifically towards these um, advertisers. So if there's a big, powerful advertiser in, for a newspaper that has that purchases big ads for this newspaper, then the newspaper isn't likely to do a big expose of their evil behavior in some third world country or some small town official sources this is another huge filter and it, this is now getting into more like what what it's like in the newsroom you're a journalist you go to a press conference at the white house and the white house is giving this press briefing and then you go back and you write about it if you write about it in a way that is not favorable to that official source, then you may not get into that press briefing again. You have to write in a way that maintains your access to official sources. If you don't have official sources, then again, to come to 2017, then you're just some blogger. You're just some jerk writing on the web. You're not, you don't have that credibility. The ability to have access to an official source is what distinguishes what they called, Chomsky and Herman called the agenda setting media from everybody else. That continues to be a salient point and an important point. I've found working in Haiti or Colombia or Venezuela that you can actually get access to official sources really easily in that in those parts of the world. But then, of course, that doesn't put you in the agenda setting media in the West or in, in the North anyway. Okay, so we're, we've got ownership. We've got advertising. We've got official sources. There's ideology. So ideology is like, in some ways, the biggest one. Back then they were talking about the Cold War ideology. So the Cold War is like seeing the world in terms of Russians behind every corner. Obviously that has nothing to do with the world we live in today, but back then in the 80s, apparently there was a lot of fear of Russian conspiracies and things like that. I'm, I'm being sarcastic. But um, there was this Cold War ideology followed by, you know, you could have updated manufacturing consent and maybe they did with the war on terror, you know, so we have this war on terror, there's terrorism everywhere and, and everything that the U.S. does is justified in terms of that ideology. And, and in fairness, you sort of adapted, as I recall, anti-communism as official ideology yes. was how they framed the fifth filter, right. but certainly their work during the war on terror years reframed it a little. Yeah. And then finally, there's flack. So flack is like the organized 
lobby, which makes individual journalist or an editor or a newspaper or an outlet pay for doing coverage that's not servile to the powerful. And so, like, in the West, in Canada, in the States, probably the most dramatic flack machine is the one that's pro-Israel, the pro-Israel lobby. So anybody, anytime, any mainstream outlet, whether it's the Toronto Star or the CBC in Canada, I don't know much about the States. I don't think the States does this very often. But anytime any of those would come up with a, with a story that presents Palestinians as, I don't know, human beings or you know, normal people that aren't just trying to blow everything up all the time or show some aspect of Israelis, you know, massacring children in Gaza or, you know, shooting kids in the head or whatever, whatever it is. Any story about that will immediately then be met with an organized, like, letter writing campaign. And what these lobby organizations will do is they'll say, they'll, they'll make very specific demands. They'll say, you have to balance this. You know, you have to retract it. You have to publish a thing from the other side. You, you know, you're biased. So the point of the flack is that if you get enough flack before you even write the story, you're afraid of the flack. When you take all of these things and put them together, these five filters, it means that it's going to be a miracle if you get some kind of anti-corporate, anti-empire, or anti-imperial, or anti-war message. And even if it does come through once, it's the repetition, it's the patterns of coverage, it's the things that are like over a period of months and years, every day you're reading these things from this perspective. And with this specific kinds of language, right? So like the famous thing with people who analyze Israel-Palestine is like the passive voice. Palestinians are always getting killed. A Palestinian died. But then if there's a rocket attack, it's like Hamas killed these people with rockets or whatnot. And there's all of that. And we can get into the details of the issue, but maybe we can just step back for a minute. Now, this seems to have been, for example, Chomsky and Herman's work, Mm -hmm. been very directly paired to an analysis of how control works in more open and democratic societies. The basic idea being there are situations of extreme inequity and injustice where people fail to resist or or are unable to because they'll be met with overwhelming violence, they'll be killed, they worry about being killed. That's not really the way things function for people living in countries like Canada and the US. There's still an implication in horrific violence and atrocities, but the system of control works differently. You've laid out what was a very systematic analysis of what feels in many ways like a regime that was an old regime Mm -hmm. that no longer exists in the same way. Mm -hmm. It feels more and more like this sort of agenda setting media doesn't necessarily capture people's attention entirely Mm. so much as social media networks that people are integrated into. And without pretending that it'll necessarily be quite so systematic, what I want to get you to try to do is talk a little about how, despite us being past the days of Mm -hmm. the print press dominating the agenda, these same critical tools are important to look at the the media that are mediating how we understand the world. Yeah, so this is a great, it's a great thing to talk about, and I have been thinking about it for a long time, And, and we've, you know, both watched the internet change so much from, you know, 2001 when we met to now 
the difference between what the internet was supposed to be and what it promised mm-hmm. and all the hype. All this talk about the multilateral agreement on investment and new tools for taking on corporate power through horizontalist networks. I mean, yeah. that's not exactly the online uh, landscape we see. Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, I remember watching a documentary before I went to Chiapas. I went to Chiapas in 2000. And I watched this documentary by Nettie Wilde. It was pretty good. It was an NFB documentary called A Place Called Chiapas. And I think she says, I mean, there's so many things that are so embarrassing now. And, you know, she says something like, the internet is su comandante Marcos's long-range missile. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know. I think, you know, we used to make fun of it, like, I think in in the newspaper they used to call it like the information superhighway or something. The information superhighway is coming. But the idea was back then that this was going to break that monopoly. So there was the, there were these corporations that would filter information and the internet was what was going to enable us to break that because mm-hmm. instead of being like this one to many kind of communication, the internet's many to many, which is great. Except that many to many on a single platform by a corporation that actually determines like in Facebook you have all your friends you can have hundreds of friends and you post something and Facebook decides which of your friends see that and which of your friends don't well that's not how the internet was supposed to work mm-hmm. you know what about the relationship between the media corporation and the platform so there's we're in this period now of like three or four platforms, right? Facebook, Google, and then at a lower level there's Twitter. Like I mean, Instagram we, we, is owned we by Facebook, WhatsApp is owned by Facebook, but so it's you know a couple. I guess Apple, Amazon, but really like Facebook and Google are these platforms. YouTube is owned by Google. So I read this report. I think it was last year, and things are changing really fast. So even a report from a year or a year and a half ago. Like the the amount of internet use that's moved to the phone now mm-hmm. is just higher and higher and higher, right? Like everybody's just on their phone now. This report that I read from Columbia University, I think it was Columbia University Journalism School, I'm pretty sure. And it was called the Platform Press. And they were addressing themselves to a, a narrow question. It was just how can media corporations make money in a context where most of the advertising revenue is being taken by Facebook yeah. because everybody's reading it on Facebook. One of the things they pointed out was the actual content that people are reading on Facebook is for the most part still produced by the media corporations. They're the ones who know how to do it. So you're not actually reading all your friends. Your friends aren't writing. Your friends aren't going out and investigating things and reporting them and then writing them up and then sending them around on Facebook. That's not really happening. What's happening is your friends are sharing the New York Times or the Washington Post or whatever handful of media corporations stuff. And then... There's more blog exposure, but yeah. There's a little bit more. There's a little bit more, but like, again, Medium is owned by one of these platforms. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Blogger is owned by Google. So even those things are peripheral right. and overall. Yeah. The big stories, the big things that you're sharing are from a handful of media and TV and so on. And so there are also opportunities for so-called fake news that they were talking about because of the way things are shared and the way things look and the way algorithms select things based on how many likes and shares they already have. There's opportunities for operators in this new space to use bots to generate higher levels of likes, use search engine key phrases to get their rankings up so that they automatically get shared in these algorithms. 
And so it's become this game. But who has the, again, who has the resources to do that? It's mm-hmm. usually going to be businesses with some capital. And, so. and, and the issue is, I mean, I, I think there's this real sense where the idea that social media has changed everything is so commonplace and observation that it's become banal and kind of like cliched. I think we can turn back maybe to the way that thinking about all sorts of political or social issues and banal cliche, we're supposed to be too cool for it and yeah. to have earnest positions about any of it. Yeah. But it's so rapidly changing and there's been so little critical analysis of substance. Yeah. People are plugged in over a much longer period of time. Yeah. And whereas the propaganda model responded to a set of institutions that you could fairly systematically look at, the opaqueness of the algorithms of these social media organizations is impressive. I mean, through Zenet in particular, which was, I think, one of a number of impressive efforts to leverage the democratic possibilities of internet use. You've done a lot of this tech work that I don't really understand, but if you could speak a little to just how the balance between some semblance of democratic accountability versus total unaccountable corporate control in the operation of like Facebook algorithms. What do we know about how they work, for example? Okay, let me let me get back to that because there's a few other points to be made first. One is like Michael Albert's lecture at the Z Media Institute. Michael Albert being, um, you know, Last generation's Chomsky follower, if, you know, we're this generation's Chomsky follower, but, my, you know, Michael Albert took Chomsky's class at MIT in the 60s, mm-hmm. and he was a heavily, you know, involved student leader in the Students for a Democratic Society, anti-war activist in the 60s, and then founder of South End Press, and founder of Z Magazine, and founder of the Z Media Institute with Lydia Sargent. All of these projects were with Lydia Sargent. And so... We went there. I went there the year before you, and then I taught there the year you came. Chomsky comes and gives a lecture, and that's why everybody goes. <laughs> and Chomsky comes and gives a lecture about what makes the mainstream media mainstream, and he goes through these filters and the propaganda model. And then Albert gives a lecture where he talks about what makes alternative media alternative. Now, alternative is a word we can't use anymore because of the alt-right, and that's all been you know taken over. But what makes alternative media alternative? So he goes through and says, well, they have corporate ownership. We have collective ownership or cooperative ownership or what whatnot. They have advertising. We don't do advertising. They have ideology, and we have movements, and we are accountable to our principles, and we're we try to give space to movements and and be useful to movements. And so that was the whole premise of the idea of the alternative media. There was a time around 2006 or seven when a friend of mine, Tarek Lubani, uh, we had this idea to really try to bridge the, what was called the free software movement with the alternative media. So we, I interviewed Richard Stallman. I, I still think it's a, it was a great interview. There was some like disconnects about what capitalism was, and he had this concept of business power, and he said, I'm not anti-capitalist. He kind of emphasized that, but there's free software. So he had this very systematic, as systematic as Ed Herman's propaganda model. So he had this free mm-hmm. software model, which is there are four freedoms. Mm-hmm. The freedom to view the code, the freedom to distribute the code, the freedom to modify the code, and the freedom to make your modifications available and, and then to use the code. So any software that is going to be a part of a, a good society, a decent society that we would want to live with, should be built on these principles. Mm-hmm. 
just as much as alternative media has been defeated by this system that we're like this media landscape so too has the free software kind of movement been defeated we're still out there on both fronts <laughs> on both fronts <laughs> but as far as like our chance to be the ones that were dictating the or you know providing the framework for how the internet and information was going to develop we're not that's not what's happening now and so facebook algorithms a great book by kathy o'neill she has a blog called mathbabe.org and the book is called weapons of math destruction m-a-t-h weapons of math destruction and so she talks about the role of these algorithms in your everyday life. They're using personality tests to determine whether you'll get a low wage job. They're they're using they're tracking where you drive in your car to determine what your insurance is gonna be. Their university rankings are being used to direct funding and donations and and basically shape the higher education system. School tests are being used to hire and fire teachers and determine what goes on in classrooms. Testing, right? Classroom testing. So all of these algorithms, she goes through and shows how perverse this is, how it's distorting society, how it's you know leading to the most unequal and ultimately irrational outcomes. And then there's a section at the end about citizenship and how algorithms like Facebook. So she says, let's say that I have a problem with this stuff and I decide to post a petition about it on Facebook. Well, Facebook gets to decide who's going to see. There's no reason to think that many of the people that I know are even going to see this thing. So the algorithms that they use are totally opaque. They're proprietary. So free software is... And there's never been any pretense towards making public the nature of those algorithms. It's considered proprietary information. And there was a time, there was like a hashtag RIP Twitter when Twitter wanted to go in this direction. And then I think Twitter came out and said, no, 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 we're never going to do that, no. Um, because people still like Twitter because, in principle, Twitter just shows you everything that everybody posts. So you'll never be able to see everything everybody posts because unless you're just sitting on Twitter all, all day, which I guess is another part of what we're supposed to be doing, but we'll get into that maybe a little bit later. But the point is, if what you see is determined by a third-party algorithm, and that algorithm is, like we said, opaque. But we do know certain things about it, which enable people to game it, enable mm -hmm. people with resources to game it. So we know, for example, that things with more views get shown to you more. That's why these systems, like even Amazon, like Amazon has this thing where you, you can become a self-published author on KDP, right? The Kindle Direct Publishing. And the idea is like the dream of being a star, right? The dream that you're gonna reach a huge audience over Amazon. But of course, Amazon is gonna show people your book if lots of people have already bought your book. And YouTube is gonna show people your video if lots of people have already seen your video. So they're not really platforms for making things available for everybody to see, which, you know, would be a not, it's not an easy problem, right? It's, but at the, in the beginning of the internet, people were thinking about it that way. But what it's become now is just another star system, like mm -hmm. another system for ensuring that people only see what everybody sees. And we can maybe turn soon to the global implications because the link with, I mean, empire in a very obvious sense, the idea that these are all northern corporations is a fairly obvious one, but nonetheless a significant one. Yeah. But as much as sort of talk well, of newspapers setting the agenda is quaint, yeah. the idea of the left being seen as a viable threat 
in the West seems almost more quaint. But I yeah. do just want to throw in there right. from old right. days when that was okay. a consideration. Yeah. The old analysis of fascism. I mean, with all the racism exploding, people talk about it. But back in, back in earlier decades, the idea was that fascism was the way capitalism responds, where parliamentary systems are insufficient means of beating back the left. Yeah. You need something more extreme. So in wait, it, let's just, uh, you know, like for listeners, Michael Parenti's Brown Shirts and Reds is, is a good reference for that. Absolutely. You can read, I guess you can read Le- Rosa Luxemburg or Trotsky yeah. directly. And um, through that chunk of the 20th century, I think it was a real staple of, yeah. of left analysis. Right. The right. point just being, when they need to play dirty, yeah. they play dirty, and when, as in societies like often Britain, yeah. you can dominate the political field through parliamentary means and capital is safe, then you maintain the the niceties of parliamentary governance. The point is just, it seems that a scenario in which oppositional movements were a threat is a scenario in which everything gets thrown against them. Mm-hmm. And I, we, there hasn't been a lot of thinking about just how much capacity for surveillance and control comes with these tools. Yeah, and just so, if you could speak to that. Yeah, I was listening. I listened to Zainab Tufeki, who's a great sociologist in the states, and she analyzes this stuff a lot. She had a, a TED talk pretty recently. I think it was called like "We're Building a Dystopia to Get People to Click on Ads." And uh, Kathy O'Neill again, go, going back to Kathy O'Neill's book, and I, I read them both. I read that book and listened to Zainab at around the same time, so I'm having trouble differentiating whose thing is whose. Worst problems. But I think Zainab had this thing where she said, you know. Facebook enables micro-targeting to the degree that their algorithm could predict from somebody's online behavior what they post. She, she points out that if you type something in Facebook and then delete it, Facebook saves that too. Mm-hmm. Based on everything you're clicking on and what you're writing, and there have been like, pe- people can look up the Facebook mood study. There have been lots of Facebook mood studies. Facebook has been able to push ten- hundreds of thousands of people to vote doing these experiments. If you show their friends saying I voted versus just saying you need to vote. They found that they turned out more people. So they're literally turning people out to vote, like the decision to vote and not to vote. And Zainab points out too, she says, there's only two possibilities here. Either Facebook has immense power over your behavior, or it's just like a mega billion dollar con game where they've conned all these advertisers into giving them all this money for right. something that doesn't work. So it's obviously it obviously does work. There's one other piece to this puzzle, which is the dark post. So like there was an academic paper where they interviewed people and they talked to the people from Facebook and Twitter who sent employees to consult with the Trump and Clinton campaigns on their campaigns, crafting messages, optimizing their messages for these for these platforms because they're big advertisers. They're big money, right? The campaign year is a big year for any advertising-based company. So Trump and presumably Clinton, but like what we know about is Trump was targeting black voters in pro-Hillary zip codes with ads showing Hillary talking about black super predators Mm -hmm. and as a way to be like well I was going to get up and go through the harassment and the checkpoints and the god knows what voter suppression and I was going to in spite of all that vote for Hillary but now after watching her say super predators I don't feel like doing that anymore right and those kinds of things are enough in an election like the states that is always within one or two percent now in a few states to change the outcome of the election. So when I was thinking about that, I was thinking, 
you know, I'm imagining like a pro-Palestine activist, you know, sitting in their basement. And I'm just thinking like, what is the pro-Israel lobby advertiser on Facebook that has the capacity to micro-target these people. They can just go and see, like, who's on, yeah, yeah, who's yeah. a fan of electronic intifada? We're putting counterintelligence operators <laughs> out of business if we're doing anything. Yeah. Who's who's on, who's a friend of electronic intifada? Or who's, you know, yeah. who's on this list? Uh, who's on the BDS movement list or whatever? So then we got, we got all these people. We, we know where they are on Facebook. Let's just send them messages, you know, not messages that make them you know, pro-Israel, because that's probably not going to work. But we don't need them to be pro-Israel. We just need them to be quiet, <laughs> you know? We just need them to not be affected, you know, just stay home, be miserable. It's hopeless anyway. You know, I, 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 you can imagine the idea that people could be sent messages to demobilize them. Mm-hmm. And I cannot imagine that that's not happening. I simply cannot imagine that's not happening. And and there's like the there's sort of the stuff that you can't project too much onto. But you know, like the high profile Zuckerberg Shimon Peres meetings. And I don't not that you want to yeah. put too much onto that. But the idea that the actual substance isn't there somewhere seems rather yeah. implausible. Yeah. And I mean, you know, with and again, as a, as a sign of how fast things are changing, like 2014, the the episode you were on the Gaza war, they were talking about how they had these uh, social media yeah, uh, yeah, armies yeah, they, or whatever. These and rooms, Lord knows they pour resources into war it, which, rooms. which means just personnel yeah. who deal with that as their yeah. nine to five. So the war rooms back then were about going and commenting, mm-hmm. comment boards and Wikipedia wars. But like, we are so far beyond that now Yeah. in terms of the way you can target ads. And most people who use Facebook or Twitter have no idea. They don't know they're the product. And they have no idea how advertisers actually use these platforms, the degree of micro-targeting, the degree of knowledge they have about you based on your behavior. And the last thing I wanted to say was the first thing I interrupted myself, but Zainab had this thing where she was talking about how an algorithm could predict whether you were a manic depressive that's about to enter a manic phase. Mm-hmm. So they, they can actually predict when you're going to enter a manic phase. And when you're about to enter a manic phase, they can show you an ad for a ticket to Las Vegas. And they can change their prices based on, they can change their pricing based on. And this. overwhelmingly, it's got to be for-profit purposes that are being put in. But I mean, as you say, the political agenda isn't irrelevant. Yeah, either. nothing guarantees profits like controlling the political agenda. That was like this image that I kept going back to, like this anti-war activist and, and fascists don't have to target us like they could obviously they could target us and round us up and do whatever they want to us but they don't have to all they have to do is keep us on our computer maybe like shit posting each other or something whatever it is fighting flame wars with each other over some issue and that's it that's all they have to do they just have to you know demoralize us and and depress us into submission yeah that's soul crushing enough but i'll just set it aside for a sec We can turn to some of the strategic implications, not to pretend that we have them that fleshed out (laughs) in a moment, but there's another dimension, which is just there really is this north-south or like empire dimension to all of this. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I've been interested in doing research into the old days where there was a real contest over control of the United Nations between the sort of decolonizing third world and the West Mm-hmm. was the fight over organizations like the United Nations Educational, Social and Cultural Foundation, yes. organization rather, UNESCO, and a variety of UN agencies in which the third world was 
yeah. getting more control, pressing issues like apartheid South Africa ending, mm -hmm. support for the Palestinians against Israel, but also changes to the international economic order. Yeah. One of the things that I've sort of learned recently, partly in looking more at Herman's work after his death, was just how central there was a demand for communication sovereignty. Right. And especially within UNESCO, a major argument from leftists internationally was that the U.S. pushed to attack UNESCO and the UN system had partly to do with the effort of third world countries to press not only demands for international economic redistribution, but also for a communications regime yeah. that would protect against American hegemony, yeah. that would safeguard third world sovereignty, and that idea of communications and culture as well as economy as being central to decolonization and third world sovereignty. Now, yeah. the reverses of recent decades are so phenomenal that it's hard to know where to start. But if you could talk a little about, about just that, the connection between this new communications regime yeah. and existing disparities of global power. Well, yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about this recently, and I came across some stuff not by a leftist, by a computer scientist in the States named Cal Newport, and I came across this lecture of his called Quit Social Media. And his argument was some kind of a labor what would you call it? Call it like a human capital argument. So he's trying to say, hey, look, you want to be valuable in this economy, the first thing you should do is quit social media because when you're on social media, you're benefiting them. They have attention engineers that are designed, he, he makes this analogy where like if you're in Las Vegas and you're pulling the slot machine, you're pulling the slot machine because it's got this these lights and sounds and everything that are designed to like stimulate your brain to make you stay there. And he says with our phones, with Facebook, we're scrolling and we're scrolling and I know this from Twitter, like I go to Twitter and I look at that little bell and I look for that little number next to the bell and I'm like, oh my god, I got seven notifications since the last time I checked, this is awesome, I'm awesome, people love me right so he's just like you're carrying the slot machine with you mm -hmm. and you're creating value for the company because you're the product he didn't say that but you know maps right on to the propaganda model you're creating value for Twitter you're creating value for Facebook you're creating their clicks and their ads and their advertisers are are happy that they're reaching all these people and they're able to micro target their people to get the, the ad benefits that they want you're not doing anything for yourself. He goes through and he says, you can get your information without going on social media. You can get satisfaction. You can connect with other human beings. You can have relationships without doing this. And so I, I, I can't help but think that if a computer science professor is giving this as advice to people looking for career satisfaction, this must also have some value and some application for, for leftists. So like, turn off your social media. Right? I mean, turn off is fair. Like, I, I think... That's always my thing. I had a thing called turn off the Canadian media. You know, turn off the, turn off your... <laughs> you know, like, it's, it it's a succinct turn of phrase. <laughs> yeah. I don't know turn where... Okay, fair enough. But I know you well enough to maybe accuse, if I may, or yeah. at least suggest that we're a little heavier still on critique than we are on prescription. Sure. Because it's a tricky time. Yeah. I mean, I remember a period of time in which outreach for whatever it was, a lecture or a demonstration really involved questions of how do you develop posters and wheat paste, which seems, if it happens, so peripheral now. Mm -hmm. You go to campuses and the way that people are plugged in means that an assertion of political rights to public space would be so foreign to the existing rhythms yeah. that sometimes you could try to pull it off, but a simple 
opting out by the entire left. Yeah. When you look to Electronic Intifada yeah. or Mondo Weiss or different successful platforms on the Palestine question, mm -hmm. and we've been yeah, continuing yeah. on that, but we could go issue by issue, it is a terrain on which people need yeah. to operate. So there's a real yeah. tension there. And there's a real tension there, and, th and things there are getting worse, and it's not entirely clear how to, what to do, for sure, because Google just made this anti-fake news thing, and there was this kind of scary thing where that Schmidt guy was on TV, and he said, you know, I'm not, we're not for censorship. We're just going to make sure nobody sees it. It'll be there, but nobody will find it in the searches. And it's like, oh, awesome. Alternet is this website that I write for sometimes. That's its main. That's its main property. Obviously, is that I write for it sometimes. No, no. It's this great. You know, it's this big U.S. website that has stayed uh, fairly strong on a lot of kind of left questions. I think, and and they get a lot of traffic, and they get a lot of. You know, they they're a little bit clickbaity in the way that they. If you go on, if you go on Alternet, you know there's a lot of those articles like ten reasons why you, you know, and number four will shock you and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But Alternet had this graph where they were asking for donations, where they said, you know, a lot of our money comes from ads, and our clicks, our views, and everything went down dramatically after Google had that anti fake news policy. So they just went way down in the rankings. And this is maybe where That's what we chatted problem. about earlier and more recently come together because it's it's really bizarre. I mean, there's this new criticism and this, what you're talking about is very frightening, frankly. And I think without having really thought it through adequately, were many of us allowing our rhythms to be paced in ways that we don't fully understand. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there's this kind of bizarre backlash to fake news. Mm -hmm. And it's happened a lot since the Trump election, but the old Chomsky-Herman analysis remains relevant. Yeah. And there's this new circumstance where what was once decried rightfully as the elite and agenda-setting media, and in the US we can talk about the Washington Post yeah. and MSNBC talk shows and the New York Times, are feeling that they're losing to this populist right-wing thing. Right. But there is this then problem, and it manifests itself, I think, on this, the focus on Russia, which maybe you can talk about, yeah. but more generally of people saying, what we need is we need to stand by old American values and just preserve the integrity of institutions like the New York Times and the Washington Post as pillars of a communications order that has kept America and the world safe since the Second World War. And we can make fun of that. Yeah. But there is a funny way in which a lot of the critiques of social media get tied up with the nostalgia for an old, vicious imperial communications yeah. order that has its... Yeah, no, and I and you're right. Like, I, I don't think the left, in the sense of, like, what you would read on Znet or Counterpunch or sites like that, has is falling for that. But, I you know, I'm on Twitter still. Mm -hmm. I haven't quit Twitter. I think I should, but I haven't quit Twitter, for maybe for some of the reasons you mentioned. And, like, I follow a lot of people that aren't leftists. I follow, like, vegans. I follow education reformers. I follow open science advocates and other kind of academics. And a lot of their political posts are, along the lines that you say there are a lot of like we need to you know trump is this anomalous thing that that we need to get back to normal you know trump is not normal you know we shouldn't normalize trump which you know has all these undertones for people like us you and me that, that these people don't have but um we must not normalize trump and for me I, you know, I don't, I don't buy that because any Republican, I think, would have done what Trump is doing, right? Like there are certain small things. The tax bill, they would have done. 
the the saber rattling with this and that the you know trying to roll back the iran deal and the cuba deal and all of those things that any republican would have done yeah i can I, I i do know that that i, I have seen that that's happening because we were talking about how bad things are when you go back to unesco you're, ta- thing. you're talking about the colonial like i just wanted to tell this story because i've been reading a lot about the congo rwanda and there's an amazing book called Imagining the Congo. I think the author is Kevin Dunn, I think. I know the title is Imagining the Congo. He just talks about how the Congo is represented through the first one is Lumumba. And the last one, I think, is Kabila in the 90s. But the Lumumba chapter was really, really powerful because here's a leader of a country that was at that time in 1960 the second wealthiest country in Africa. Okay, this is now the biggest basket case in the world, right? 187 out of 187 on the Human Development Index. Not anymore. I think it's up in the 160s now or something. There are things that are worse. But again, like the the quintessential dysfunctional, lowest per capita income, lowest human, you know, perpetual wars. But in 1960, at the time of decolonization, what Lumumba was trying to achieve was a black republic that was going to have a constitution and it was going to be multi-ethnic and it was going to be a united, powerful, industrial black republic in the middle of Africa with, you know, today 60 million, I don't know, probably 20 million, 20 plus million people now. And the author of Imagining the Congo points out that he had no way of getting that message out except through the Western media. Mm -hmm. That just, I mean, like, you want to talk about distortions and fake news and lies that continue, that people continue to say and repeat and cite today that, you know, I'm going to get into when I read about it. But, like, the fact that he had to go through the Belgians and the Americans and the British to try to convince them. He came to Canada. He came to, you know, he came to Washington and New York and Canada and he spoke at the United Nations. The fact that he had to try to use those channels and those channels were completely closed. And not just closed, but completely hostile, right? I don't know if we're worse off than that. Maybe before going into some of the more specific issues, let's let's sort of bracket and close this communications discussion that we've done for most of the time so far. And I think just like, I don't even know if you want to speak to this, but it's it's something a little vaguer. But since this is a podcast, after all, (laughs) you know, this American life, Ira Glass, it looms so large on the landscape of Mm -hmm. podcast stuff. I remember an interview with him where it was the interviewer who really said that what I find is really interesting about your work is your contempt for earnestness mm. and just this idea of a, of a cool removal and jadedness and cynicism, yeah. which is really, really widespread. And I mean, his, Glass's response went through his old silly days when he used to, as a student in the 80s, be concerned with... U.S. wars in Central America and go to Guatemala and volunteer. I may be getting, yeah, I think it was in Guatemala that he volunteered. And I guess, I don't know exactly how to approach this, but it really does seem that, especially on the question of anti-imperialism, which I want to segue to, 
there's this sense that it's this quaint, old, silly notion yeah. that is no longer relevant and that to earnestly really have any political commitment is dorky enough that it's stigmatized. And I don't know where that fits in all of these cultural shifts, but there seems to be something surely that's being lost. Yeah, yeah. And and there is something huge being lost. And I think that, again, I'm going to go to the Congo because I've been reading all this, what I'd call like really beautiful, really sophisticated writing by people who went to writing school and did writing classes and then went and did apprenticed writing under good writers. And you read it and you're like, wow, this is amazing. This is amazing writing. It's powerful. The images, the metaphors, the paragraph construction, the style, the, the rhythm. And then it's, it's also just incredibly racist. And when you read through it and you try to... Which requires empirical distortion. Like, you have to lie to make the racist narrative work. So it's just like, help it. So I wanted to say, like, I'm reading... I'm not going to talk... I'm going to save naming names for a piece where I can carefully, you know, run through the things. But I'm going to name a good example. So there's there's this guy, Amadou Deme. He was a military observer. Then he was a United Nations... in intelligence officer under Romeo Dallaire in Rwanda during the Rwanda genocide in 1994. And then he was an investigator for the International Criminal Tribunal in Rwanda. I'm just finishing up his book called When Victors Tell the Story, something like that. He's just like the most sincere, non-sophisticated writer. Like, I'm sorry if you're listening, Amadou, because I know that he lives in Canada. I, I've, I've never met him or anything, but, you know, it's not that kind of writing. It's not flowery. It's not fancy. It's not beautiful. He's just like a super sincere guy. He describes what if he's If the subtext isn't obvious, you mean all of this by praise, I should yeah. say. It's all certain body language. But like, so he's he's talking about Africans, and he describes someone. He like he meets an African, you know, a Rwandan or something, and he says he's a soft-spoken man. He's a tall, soft-spoken man, and I'm just like, wow, like. You can describe somebody physically without being racist. But I've been reading these descriptions of Kabila's head being too big for his body. Kabila's corpulent and talkative. These are I'm, these are all verbatim quotes, okay? Who else? Uh, the Hutus in general. Hutus are a, an obedient mass. A, an obedient mass. What else is there? You know, and then they're describing Kagame, who's the current dictator. And Kagame is always... De- he's described physically in racist ways, but not like... Not negatively. So Kagame's hawk-like. He's tall. He unfolds his tall body out of his chair, and he stares at you with his eyes that seem to look through you. It's just like, what the, what the fuck is this? Right? And it's just like the aestheticization of black people. Political figures, you know, powerful people, political actors, agents that are described in terms of their physical characteristics through this trope, this literary trope that says that people's physical characteristics tell you about their moral characteristics. So now you take these people, and again, I'm I'm tempted to name them, but like you pick up a book by a oh, white time. pick up a book by a white person about the Congo. Yes. You know, just Google books by white people about the Congo. These books will come up. I promise you, they'll come up. Okay, they start with a quote by Joseph Conrad. They go through this aesthetic description, and then their explanations for the politics of the conflict are just so banal. They're just so utterly banal. So it's like this sophistication in terms of writing and description, and then they say. 
Well, the Congo defies idealists. It always has. The French really love their African children, and that's why they did what they did. Americans see things in terms of good guys and bad guys, and that's why they did what they did. It's stupid. It's like, it's offensively stupid in terms of the, what you go to the book for, which is some kind of political understanding of what actually happened. And so you walk away and you don't realize that you've been propagandized, right, in this way. But like, you've walked away with fundamentally racist assumptions about groups of people. And you've walked away with like, really poor, shoddy explanations of what happened that will not help you understand what happened. There's a point about Ira Glass. Ira Glass is the one of the minds behind Serial, right? The podcast Serial and the sure. podcast S-Town. Well, those podcasts are so, like, the most extraordinarily popular podcasts ever in humanity, whatever. Those are really sincere. Those are really earnest. Mm-hmm. Those are, like, deadly earnest. Minute to minute is just ultra earnest. The guests are earnest. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the voices, the stories are told completely earnestly. So I don't even know what that's fair. And honestly, maybe he was being nice to an interviewer who pitched him that question. And that's how he, so it's, it's not a critique necessarily of that, but certainly it is of that tendency. Yeah. But like, you know, what do we remember? Who do, who do we, like, who moves us? Like, you know, Che Guevara or Patrice Lumumba or... Hugo Chavez, in my case, you know, I'm not going to say, like, generally, or Noam Chomsky. Like, these are not cynical people. Like, there's not cynicism. They're very earnest. It's easy to make fun of how earnest these people are. People probably connect with Bernie Sanders for that reason, and Jeremy Corbyn for that reason. Even deceptively, Donald Trump for that reason, or George W. Bush back in the day. Like, they're they're lying, but they, they don't present themselves as slicker or smarter they present themselves as like simple and and we're like you i think it's likely that your listeners skew towards the involvement in palestine that you do probably there is an interesting issue that's always been been sort of in the mix around palestine with a lot of sometimes unnecessary exceptionalism Mm-hmm. And sometimes this idea of things, it being the a last colonial issue or an issue that's distorted mm-hmm. in a way that nothing else is. And I think there are exaggerating tendencies in, mm-hmm. on the question of Palestine. Mm-hmm. But the way that that once fit into a much more comprehensive anti-racist and anti-imperialist understanding of the world feels like it's really been lost. I mean, there was that process coming out of decolonization yeah. where after hundreds of years of fairly like rigid vicious racism huge parts of the world freed themselves from that and there was this imagination that has not been lost but is easy to get pushed to the margins of memory constructed by the sort of communication systems we've been discussing and i don't really know what you think about what it means to try to get back to that but there is just this massive gap where once there were these movements and and people and countries even and national leaderships and mass-based organizations putting forward this vision of the world that explained things and provided a framework that makes it easy not to fall into mm-hmm. the sort of racist diatribes you're discussing yeah and i don't know how we how we push back towards that but yeah i mean uh, you know like i said you know I, I i have two i'm working on two things that i don't think amount to to a strategic 
plan or anything. But like one is quit social media and get off <laughs> okay. it. Yeah. And the other one is you gotta leave the, the you gotta leave the money on the table. So like I interviewed um, pseudonym, let's call her Layla. Uh, on the Ossington Circle about Saudi, I think it's one of the I think it's one of the best interviews out there about the Saudi Kingdom. We read Medea Benjamin's book, The Kingdom of the Unjust, and we kind of went through it. But Layla's from there, and I don't I think it's underrated, you know, personally. <laughs> well, um, so the point is that I asked her, you know, what should we do? Like, how do we yeah. start to respond to to this kind of increasing assertion of Saudi? power <laughs> like Saudi politics in Washington and, and elsewhere and she was just like well we got to start by leaving the money on the table like nobody who can yeah. nobody who takes this money can have any legitimacy to say anything and so it's like there is all this money available to co-opt people and it's not just golf money obviously it's like it's money but any union leader any you know left activist that has any following or platform as the as the saying goes now will be invited to monetize that platform will be invited to you know to the tape to bring their to that table and like dignity involves and has always involved in this third world project or you know decolonizing project it's always involved people being offered those things and not taking them. Yeah, but like efficacy requires solvency too, right? Like you also, do, yeah. there is the dilemma of funding. Yeah, yeah, and the, you know, Lumumba sold beer. People yeah. find ways to make a living while they're doing this, but like, that's, it's a problem. But it's, it's like, there are, that's, that was Z's model too. Like Z was subscriber funded, right? There's a guy, Tom, he's from San Francisco. He's an anarchist organizer in San Francisco. Can't remember his last name. He was at one of our Z institutes. He talks a lot about community land trusts. He argued in a way that Steve Shalom and I both tried to counter argue and he had responses and we were both, we were both kind of walking away stunned. Like, oh, he just, he just took us to school on this issue. But his argument on the face of it is hard to hard to believe. But he was arguing that unions basically started to lose when they won dues checkoff. Dues checkoff means that the union gets your dues. Yeah. Right. The employer collects yeah. them, the union yeah. gets them whether you organized and got them or not. So he says having to go and get the dues right. is a perpetual Organizing. It's perpetually organizing. You have to go and you have to talk to them and you have to win their trust and you have to get their money. They have to they have to make a sacrifice to you and you have to justify that constantly. And so it's just easy, incredibly easy to get out of touch in a way. It's not a matter of survival anymore for you to constantly be in touch with your members. That's the fundamental argument. Just for that, Move for that, Dan. Yeah, I, I was gonna, I was gonna almost say something that dovetails too easily with that, but maybe I'll just set that as your statement on the table for further discussion. Sure. Let's shift gears for a second yeah. on the question of anti-imperialism to come yeah. back. Yeah. You mentioned the issue of Saudi Arabia and the sort of counter-revolution we see going on in the Middle East mm -hmm. and the Gulf. The paradigm coming out of Z yeah. was one of a responsibility of people in imperial societies mm -hmm. to raise the costs of imperial aggression from within the imperial society. Yeah. 
setting aside the provenance, which we don't sure. want to get stuck sure. in. Yeah. I think there's a lot to that. And the idea, again, just to further flesh it out, that came very largely in the case of Z out of the experience of Vietnam War era organizing, where the idea was what people can do here yeah. is create social costs with major examples like there be, uh, of course, the mm -hmm. major obstacle to the U.S. was having to fight the Vietnamese people, yeah. but there were at certain times certain offensives they were unable to launch because they had to have enough troops available to deal with riots in U.S. streets yeah. if they were going to carry out a particular massacre yeah. or what have you, which is yeah. a healthy deterrent. Yeah. What's tricky is that in dealing with the Middle East, that was a paradigm that served very well mm -hmm. in the early years of the 2000s with a certain left unity after 9-11. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to exaggerate or romanticize that, but certainly on the far left, it was more simple to deal with that yeah. amidst this just cascade of Western aggression across right. the Middle East. Right. There's now a situation where in addition to US and Israeli aggression, we have such a mess of regional conflicts, but also very heavily defined and structured, I think, by this Gulf offensive. Yeah. Where does this this leave us, and where in particular does that leave people who are trying to deal in a principled way with these questions from the West? You know, one of Chomsky's early books, you probably know which one, I don't know which one, but was dedicated to Fred Hampton and came out just after Fred Hampton's assassination. Chomsky acknowledges that, but if I could criticize Z or Chomsky or ourselves a little bit, I don't think we emphasized enough or looked enough or strongly allied enough with that kind of Black Panther politics. You know, I read a fantastic and huge book called Black Against Empire. Yeah, it's, it's about that specifically anti-imperial mm -hmm. aspect of the Black Panther and their, the Black Panthers and their politics. And it's a history. It's a history of the whole party. And it kind of argues that what distinguished the Black Panthers from all of the other groups that became... They're coming at a snack and other... But that didn't become as big as the yeah. Black Panthers or as important was actually their anti-imperialist mm -hmm. politics. If you look at the indigenous question in North America or the Black intellectuals and black left intellectual output over the past hundred years, right? There's deep, powerful lessons and insights about what it means to be anti-imperialist. And you were talking about the Congo, like Malcolm yeah. X on the Congo. Yeah. This. If you just go through Z and that the Z output, you may not realize that there are these huge veins of rich material mm -hmm. that, you, that we can learn a lot from. So that's one part that I think needs to be studied and incorporated into your analysis. The other part is you don't want to get too stuck on the on the idea that like this is the belly of the beast or like we're the belly of the beast because internationalism is a real thing and it's important and anti-imperialism has an internationalist basis. Like the idea is this is not something we should be doing forever. We shouldn't actually see ourselves as trapped in these nation states. This is a reality. It's an economic and political reality now, but we should have a vision that, that kind of transcends that. Now, getting to the Gulf question, I've been watching these weird videos talking about YouTube. I've been watching these weird videos. There's a whole genre of videos where like Saudi produces videos about how they're going to blow up Iran and like you see their missiles launching and then these targets in Iran blowing up and then Iran makes these videos about how they're going to blow up Saudi and then they have the missiles blowing up Saudi. So I've been watching those. It's pretty weird. I think one of the things that's been confusing is that 
there's been this acceptance of Saudi as part of the region or something. So it's like, well, Israel's not part of the region and the U.S. isn't part of the region, but the Saudis are part of the region. They put forward these peace plans and they Mm -hmm. do these things and they, you know, they have been this force of co-optation over the whole history that we're looking at. And I think one thing to do is go back and look at that history again. Because you'll realize that everything that reactionary that's happened in the Arab world over the past 50 or 60 years, the Saudis have been involved. The Saudis have been like deep involved and not just the Arab world. I study Afghanistan a lot. All those warlords, you know, in Afghanistan that destroyed the country after 89, they were all sponsored by the Saudis. Or, I mean, I shouldn't say they were all sponsored by the Saudis because the particular ones were sponsored by the Saudis. Yeah. Right. I think to try to understand anti-imperialist politics today, I think part of it is realizing that it's not as different a situation as it might seem geopolitically. You know, in terms of the technology and the and the media, I think there's a lot of analysis and theorizing that we have to do. But in terms of geopolitics, I don't think things change quite as fast. The tangent that I want to go off on is the idea of sovereignty, because I keep coming That's not back. much of a tangent. It's not that much of a tangent, right? Because that's what Lumumba was after, right? Lumumba was, Lumumba was about national unity and sovereignty against Belgian settler colonialism and colonialism. Mm-hmm. And what the Haitian revolutionaries were fighting for was sovereignty in a way. And, and like even black power. There's real arguments about what it means, but it's like an indigenous, the indigenous question. So sovereignty always comes up. Just to go back to the technology conversation we were having, it's this interesting thing, like Facebook, for example, has these presumptions of being a global company with 2 billion users. Well, only 200 million of their users, or one-tenth, are American. But they are completely an American company. They are now the fully involved The decision-making structure in, is not ambiguous. Yeah, and they're fully involved in suppressing Russian news, right? Russian fake news and, and Russian bots and, and whatever else. else yeah. Same with Google. So here are these companies that want to be global, and yet they're perfectly happy to screw over the largest part of their audience, their global audience. If we think in terms of us being the rest of the world, I don't know what, you know, belly of the beast or maybe we're the rest of the world, but, but the rest of the world has to ask that question. We've got to say like, do, are we, you know, are we going to be... Your second? we now is Bandung? Yeah, I, I guess yeah, my okay. we now is Bandung. I mean, you know, like, are we going to be second class citizens on these American platforms? which are explicitly declared, they're not even trying to pretend that they're not. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, are we gonna run a, a poorly resourced version of this that has dignity, that's, that's our own? That's what the Zapatistas talk about all the time, is like that dignity of being able to say like, we don't have much, but what we have is our own. Yeah, I guess that's the point of departure, is like, try to think about what's a, what is a dignified thing to do in this thoroughly undignified situation that we're in. Um, okay. You know, it's not, it's definitely not like how I'm living, but it's what, you know, what we should try to do, I guess. As good a note to close on as any. Well, thank you, Justin, for being interviewed on your own show. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> Let's do this again. Sounds good. Sounds good.